Hello there, and welcome to Avatar, the podcast. Hello. I'm Booster Greg. That's Acorn Bandit. We're so excited for this episode. Uh, I have a confession to make. I watched the next episode already. I couldn't help myself. I was rewatching this one, and Netflix was just like, do you want to watch the next one? And the remote was just out of reach, and I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, don't stop the... Oh, jeez. Oh, okay. I guess I'm just watching yeah. this episode. Hold my arm. Why don't you? Or twist my arm. Just twist my arm, Netflix. Let's keep on going. I, I did stop, yep. though, after that, because I was thinking about the next episode and the previous episode, and they were starting to, like, mesh. And uh-huh. I was like, this is, this is not good. We got to stop. We must end this charade. But I think it's safe to say, after the second episode, I've been enjoying... Cora quite a bit more. Me too. More than last time, which yes. I'm actually really relieved about. I feel like the second episode was just building up pro bending, which I don't particularly care about one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was a little bit of a snore. But this one, I was just like itching to write and I found it so much more satisfying than the previous one. So we're good to go. Anyways, before I repeat myself again, Welcome in, everyone. We have an exciting episode for all of you. And I want to just take a quick moment to thank everyone who's been answering the polls and the Q&As over on Spotify uh, and doing the polls on YouTube and all of the new subscribers we have on YouTube, all of the new followers we have for the podcast in general, everyone who's just been kind of like hanging out with us, sticking around, whether you've been here since last episode or since the very first episode. We appreciate you. What Greg said. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, everyone. Speaking about fan appreciation, we have, per the usual, two reviews to go ahead and read. These are five-star written reviews that were left over on uh, Apple Podcasts, which we always try to read and do our best. So we have two. Acorn's going to read the first one, and I'm going to read the second one. Yes, our first review comes from Preposterous Sprague, which is an incredible screen name. They write, second review, still no complaints. It's been a while since I have listened to your podcast. While I do remember that this podcast is in my library, I start to listen again. Seems like I seems like when I do, however, I come back at the perfect time. I haven't listened to your podcast for many months, and when I was bored, I remembered to go back. And I had a few episodes left. I got to the end and realized you guys are going on a break and then said it will be until April before you start Cora. I was most excited for this because I couldn't wait until you guys got this far. You are not alone. Yes. It had so many people say, we cannot wait for Cora. Personally, I had no problem with your break because I have a little bit of experience with content creation and know how much time and effort it takes to create content. Also, it was already April when I started to listen again. And even better, it was the week that you were going to release your first episode of Cora. What incredible timing. Mm-hmm. You two cover this content so great and really allows me to watch the Avatar series all over again while driving to and from work, all in my head. I do like there is a video option now, and I finished Welcome to Republic City on YouTube. And Greg, I'm so sorry to say this, but this was my first time putting a face to your voice, and I imagined you to be younger. Hey, I'm gracefully entering my Iro period. Thank you, you very much. So uh, you can just check that ageism at the door. Okay. <laughs> my intentions are not to be rude or mean. Uh-huh. I was surprised. Bottom line. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what, when you what you break down in Korra. I feel like the events are far more intense than they were in The Last Airbender. Keep up the fantastic work and I'll be listening and watching from here on out. 
Speaking of intense, mm-hmm. we were just talking about that. This episode, I feel, is the most intense we've had so far with Cora. Oh, yes. By mm-hmm. far. There are points where I was rewatching this episode and I realized we didn't talk about just how scary, like we talked about how scary Amon is, but I feel like we kind of understated it. Uh, and yeah. we'll go into that a little bit more. But we have a, another review from Nate Pat, and they write Great audience perspective. If I could rate this podcast out of 10 stars instead of five, I would rate it a wait for it 10 Zin. Ten because the number ten and then tens is also a character. I'm explaining that not twenty six percent funnier. This podcast works really well <laughs> at giving an audience perspective of the wonderful series that other podcasts may not. I'm really excited for Cora, as people say it isn't as good as Avatar: The Last Airbender. However, I think people forget that every season of Cora was meant to be the last, except season three. Mm. Which actually a lot of people, the side note, a lot of people have been saying that they can't wait for us to get to season three specifically. So I'm awesome. excited for that. Yeah. Uh, I think that they still told a great story and I'm excited for you guys to see the same. Very fun podcast. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and remember, if you want your five star written review read live right here on the show, and by live, I mean pre recorded then go ahead over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star written review. Because otherwise, we don't know it exists because we can't read it. Because... That is how the written language works. Yes, and in my mind, everyone (laughs) said that along with Acorn. Yes, 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 yes. I heard it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you, everyone, for helping with that. everyone. And uh, remember, we are making a push over on our YouTube page. So if mm-hmm. you go to youtube.com slash avatar the podcast, you can leave a subscription there. Help us inch further to our goal of 1000 subscribers. We're getting pretty close. So I'm very excited. Uh, and you could actually see the video format there if you're listening to this. And if you're watching this, hello, you've already hit the subscribe button on the bottom. <laughs> right? This is the episode for book one, season three, the voice in the night, or as we like to call it, Cora's Challenge. Yes, that's right. This episode was written by Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Kanetsko and was directed by Joaquin Dos Santos and Ki Hyun Ryu. We're getting Much better, better at that. Much <laughs> We're better. Getting better. <laughs> uh, I found that like I had a double take because I copy and pasted this from our previous episodes and yeah. it's still just the same group. Yeah. It's very shocking to me because I feel like. Nice, uh... Yeah, like a, a nice, tight little storytelling group. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Avatar was always different writers and directors, and they were bouncing yep. around a lot. But this is very succinct, which I appreciate. Uh, the episode begins with Korra having a terrible nightmare where she is ambushed in her sleep by equalist foot soldiers. She tries to fight them off, but is eventually defeated and falls to the ground. Amon slowly walks up to her and tells her that she will be nothing after he takes her bending away. As his hand approaches her face, Korra wakes up screaming in a cold sweat. Naga tries to comfort Korra, and Korra assures her friend that it's all right. It was only a nightmare. And I gotta say, Naga just resting her chin on Korra and like snuggling in close. Oh, my heart. I know. I knew you were going to talk oh, about man. that because same. Yeah. Same. I have a white dog. I know. Who's a husky. And so I thought of her. Yeah. 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 She'll, she'll do that, but with her butt. <laughs> <laughs> 
she'll when she when she wants to snuggle, she'll come up and then you know do, do a little doggy turn and then mm-hmm. lie down right against my back. Oh yeah. Uh, yep. I have two dogs. One of they're both uh, rescues and they're both mutts essentially. And whenever anyone says they're a rescue, they're mean. They're mutt. So don't ask them what kind of dog they are because there are several <laughs> kinds of dogs. Typically. Typically. But um, Pippin is part husky and she likes to back up her butt like a dump truck and like she wants butt scratches. And then yes. Rusty will literally just put his chin on your shoulder or on oh. your chest, whatever's closer at the time. So that was very reminiscent of me of Rusty. And I actually, when I rewatched it, I was like giving him some snugs. Um, I do have a comment about the dream though. Yes specifically, you know, we've talked so far about Cora's character arc being this whole concept of her excelling in the physical and lacking in the spiritual. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of her identity right now is wrapped up in the fact that she can bend. She knows all the elements except for air. She's working on it, but she's so strong and she's so um, confident in her abilities that this concept, this nightmare of someone coming and taking that strength away from her is like the biggest fear of hers. So I just want to point that out. Like it is, that dream is probably the scariest thing for her to experience. Um, I was thinking about this nightmare and how exaggerated it might be. Mm Because like she doesn't know much about Amon, right? And she doesn't really know much about um, his foot soldiers or or his forces. And as as I was watching this, I was kind of like, well, a nightmare is typically a very exaggerated view of whatever that challenge that you're facing is. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of kept that in mind as we learned more about Amon and his foot soldiers in this episode. Um, and you'll see what I mean towards the end. Yeah. But we're not there yet. We're actually just at the next morning where Councilman Tarlock, Tenzin, and a council of representatives from the Fire Nation, Earth Kingdom, and Water Tribe discuss the need for a task force whose sole purpose is to find and neutralize Amon. Tenzin disagrees as the move for a task force just seems too aggressive and would only further divide the conflict between benders and non-benders. When asked who would lead such a task force, Tarlock very generously says that it would be an honor and a privilege for him to do it. Tenzin accuses the councilman of trying to pull off yet another ploy but Tarlock claims to be the only one trying to help. When Tarlock compares this situation to events that happened 42 years ago with Yakone and how Aang wasn't afraid to deal with that threat head on, Tenzin becomes offended. And of course at that, my brain is like, lore, unlocked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who is I, this Yakone? <laughs> yeah, I very much like this um, breadcrumb trail of the past. Yeah. And and then yeah. Brike knows it. Brike is like, okay, we're gonna give you a taste of adult mm-hmm. gang. Like mm-hmm. it, and it's working. It's absolutely working for me. There is something I found very interesting in this particular scene. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you picked up on it. When Tenzin becomes offended that Tarlock would even remotely connect himself in any way, shape, or form to Aang. He says, how dare you compare yourself to Avatar Aang and not how dare you compare yourself to my father. father. I found that interesting. I did too. And I thought about that. I think in a lot of ways, Tenzin's relationship with his dad is strange. Mm -hmm. Because at one, on one level, he is his father and he was raised by him. But on the other level, Aang is such an icon and he was... 
the basically the the figurehead of the air nomads, yep. a culture and a legacy that Tenzin has taken over. So I think in a lot of ways, he's almost like distanced himself from his personal relationship with his father because Aang's, Aang just represents so much more than that. So he defaults to that, which on one level, on one way, it's it's kind of sad mm-hmm. because I want to see like, you know, he has this whole like <laughs> relationship with his mom, which is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. What to, I don't know how to describe it. Be like, okay, mother. <laughs> 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 but with Aang, it's it, it's he's larger than life. I also had that thought. I was also kind of playing with that notion. And um, another reason potentially could be how Tenzin wants to be perceived. So I don't think he wants to be perceived necessarily with any favoritism yeah, um, or any, I think he wants to make it on his own. So he tries to distance himself from his father as much as he can while still honoring his father's legacy. So when he's in a professional environment, he says the proper title for Aang, which would be Avatar Aang. And he doesn't say my father. Mm, um, yeah. I 100% agree with you in that. Like, there's also that whole dynamic of, of the estranged father and how he does kind of, um, he's closer to Katara than he was ever with Aang. Uh, but I also think there's a political reason for it as well. Definitely. Yeah. I love that observation. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Tarlock is, oh, yes. is voiced by D. Bradley Baker. No. Yes. I had to quadruple check this because I didn't believe it. What? Yeah. So uh, according to IMDb, the Avatar Wiki, and Wikipedia, just general, is is definitely D. Bradley Baker. Oh, my God. Who everyone knows is the voice of all of the animals in the Avatar. Right. The Last Airbender universe. He has a voice? Yes. Well, he, remember, he also did he voice... He can speak words? He voiced um, Chong. I know, I'm just Of kidding. the nomads, <laughs> if everyone remembers correctly. But yeah. the the duality of that was really cool. Being able to play that, like, absolute kind of free-loving, going-through kind of character. And now Councilman Tarlock, who is sleazy. Big time. Yes. Um... That actually is amazing because the quality of the voice acting immediately triggers those like warning bells. Yes. Oh, this guy. Uh-huh. Nope. Nope. Something's going on here. Something's real. And and I think I'm remembering things from my first watch through. It's Me very too. like foggy. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised what I remember one way or the other to be true or not. But yeah. Uh, the fact that this guy shows up, he is so confident and Tenzin doesn't like him immediately. They're they're setting us up. They're doing some good foreshadowing here right now. And I'm excited about it. Absolutely. I do have a note from the commentary yes, about this scene. Please. Yes. So Brian and Mike agree that they would have loved to have given the council members some more background. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't have time. And of course, this was, you know, this I think is the reason for a lot of things. They said, you know, we only had 12 episodes to tell this crazy story. Um, if we gave them more dialogue and more council scenes, we would have like had to invest more time in them. So they kind of regret it because as is the can- council members come across as like hand raising robots. Yeah. They say nothing and just raise their hands. But at the same time, they only had so much time. Well, when I was writing my notes for this episode, I was surprised that the Fire Nation representative didn't have an actual name because she was pretty outspoken. Yeah, I know. She like, was probably the one that got the most. Yeah. 
Yeah, she had a personality almost for a, yeah. a nameless robot council person. Half of a personality. Yeah. Um, the other note is that when they were thinking about Legend of Korra and starting to come up with the concept of it, along with the pro-bending angle, they also thought politics. They really wanted to like lean into politics, which they did agree was um, kind of a risky move because, you know, of course, kids love to sit and listen about tax legislation. <laughs> sure. As all so kids they said, do. As all kids do, you know, just a bunch of adults um, arguing with each other in a council room with other adults sitting there watching and raising their hands. Um, so they, they knew it was kind of a, a risk, but mm -hmm. that was one of their main ideas is going yeah. into the politics angle. Tarlock warns that Amon is going to stop at nothing to rid the world of bending and calls for a vote. And as we know, Tenzin is outvoted. Back on Air Temple Island, Cora practices her circle walking while listening to the radio, which is playing some nice old timey jazz, mm -hmm. which really, it, that actually brings me back to Bioshock. Whenever I hear the music in Korra, I immediately think of Bioshock and I get creeped out. Me too. So yep. her training is cut short when the song is interrupted by a broadcast from Amon who addresses the announcement of the task force. Very quick. News travels quick. Suspiciously, Suspiciously quick. Suspiciously quick. Hmm. Mm -hmm. He tells the benders of Republic City that they no longer need to be afraid as their numbers grow stronger by the day. Cora listens in a panic as the radio cuts to dead air. Very creepy. And I know you mentioned this before. I think that's such a cool use of the radio. Yeah. And um, Brian also said that this was fun for them because it's another way of having the villain be with a good guy without actually being there. And the decision to cut to dead air instead of just resuming the music was a very good touch. I thought, yeah. The next day, Mako notices that he is going to miss the trolley. He goes to run without looking both ways. This is something that I do with my daughter now all the time when we go into like across a road, parking lot, look both ways. Mako should have listened and is mm -hmm. hit by a woman on a moped. The woman apologizes. And before Mako can get too angry, he looks up and is awestruck by her beauty. And we get that stereotypical slow motion hair Waving in the hair, tossing in the wind. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The woman whose name is Asami recognizes Mako as she helps him up and becomes embarrassed. She offers to make it up to him by taking him to Kwan's Cuisine, which is a rather upscale restaurant. When Mako admits that he doesn't own clothes that fancy, Asami tells him that she'll take care of that. The date is set and Asami takes off on her moped and Mako blushes as she looks back. Oh boy. Oh boy. You know, I thought about this more. And I think for me initially, it was a little jarring to go into Korra and have so much, so many like romance storylines when we didn't have that in the original. And after thinking about it more, I mean, these these guys are like 17, 16. Yeah. They're they're, they're older young. than the gang. Yeah. Um and still so, young, like, though. like the, they're older than the gang, but still teenagers. It, so, of course, there's going to be some emotions and some attraction and some flirting some hormones, and all of that stuff. Yeah, some yeah. hormones. Yeah, <laughs> I do like that. This team avatar is older than the previous one when we first meet them because it it gives Brike um, an opportunity to differentiate the two groups without having to try that much harder. Right. There are different parts of their lives. They're not already in their permanent relationships for the rest of their lives that we all kind of like fanshipped. Yep. 
Uh, so we get to see things like relationships and teen drama and stuff like that, where we didn't get necessarily get to see that with the original gang. And we probably never will, to be honest. Like, I, I know as of recording this right now, the uh, adult gang animated feature is not out yet. So we don't know what's going to happen, but I can't imagine they're going to shake the status quo up too much. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's going to be more of what we want, and that's a good thing, I think. At least hopefully. Mm -hmm. We have another voice acting note right here. Yes. For Asami, and she is voiced by Seychelle Gabrielle, which I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. We already have known and seen her, actually. Oh? Mm Mm-hmm. She played the live-action version of Princess Yue in the movie That Shall Not Be Named. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <gasps> I looked at her and she looked super familiar to me, not from that necessarily, uh, but she was also Lord, Lordes, Lords, Lords Delgado from Falling Skies. I loved Falling Skies. I haven't seen it in a very long time, but it was a really cool, like post-apocalyptic alien invasion yes. movie. That was the one with the, the aliens in the back, right? Uh, I don't remember that necessarily. Noah Wiley was in it though. I remember okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was on TNT for anyone yes. here in the States. Yes. Uh, I just remembered really liking it. And it was just The Walking Dead with aliens. And I thought that was really uh-huh. cool. <laughs> I remember seeing yeah. at, l- at least the first season. Yes, yeah. for sure. She also was in Blackout as Izzy Itani and The Tomorrow War, which was on Amazon Prime, uh, opposite of Chris Pratt as Sergeant Diaz. Very cool. She was also in the commentary. With Janet. Oh, hey, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Back at Air Temple Island, Cora is having dinner with Tenzin and the rest of the family. As Tenzin begins to pray, Tarluck interrupts and invites himself to the table. After all, airbenders never turn away a hungry guest. He says that so smugly. <laughs> Tenzin sighs and sits down while Pema glares at her husband. I know. I know. She's like, really? And he's like, well, what do you expect me to do? <laughs> Tarlock goes up to Cora and really butters her up as he introduces himself. Iki asks why Tarlock has three ponytails and notes that he smells weird. Tarlock calls the girl precocious and turns his attention to Cora once again. The councilman asks Cora to join his task force, but to everyone's surprise, she declines the offer. Cora clarifies that she came to the city to learn airbending from Tenzin, and she needs to concentrate on that. Tarlock goes to leave, but tells the Avatar that she will be hearing from him again soon. Bye-bye, Ponytail Man! Iki yells as Tarlock exits. <laughs> the next scene, we are treated to Mako being uncomfortable as he is being dressed for his big date. And these are clothes that he could never afford. And it's that just that typical uncomfortable. You have the a tailor slash waiter slash whatever he is. Like, I have questions about Quans. <laughs> uh, uh, I know. He's... He, he kind of comes across as a manservant. Like, yeah. Like the kind of servant who is like a butler and just does everything for the person. It's weird. And I, I do wonder, is he Kong? Is he just Do, a Does he work at Kong's? Does, is he working for Asami's family? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I, so I was writing this and I was like, oh yeah, it's just a tailor. And then the next scene he's at the restaurant. And then I stopped and I like really paid attention. I was like, this is the same. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just a way to like condense things and just get the story moving. Because really, who cares if he goes to a tailor first and then goes to the restaurant? But it just, mm-hmm. it just stru- it struck me as odd. So anyways, this waiter, servant, tailor, person type guy. 
uh, goes to remove Mako's red scarf, but Mako catches his hand and tells him that the scarf stays. Uh, more eagle-eyed watchers will notice that the waiter does have a elegant silk scarf on his arm to mm. be replaced. The waiter agrees and shows Mako to his table. Asami gushes over Mako's pro-bending and learns that they will not be able to make the tournament due to lack of funds. When dinner arrives, the waiter lets it slip that Asami is actually Asami Sato, daughter of Hiroshi Sato, who is the creator of the Sato Mobile, which we have seen so many times in the past two episodes. They did a really good job at building up the Sato Mobile. We saw that yes. as a, a very, um, the rich people have really nice ones, and we'll see it used again a little bit later in this episode. Yeah. Like the triple threats. Yes. They, the, the triple threat triads roll down the street in a Sato mobile and we've seen them all over the place. And we've had a lot of like either characters interacting with them or we've seen them on the road. And then now we're seeing the guy who made them, mm -hmm. which obviously is a, is a reference to Ford. Yes. I would imagine. I would, I would because, think so. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Ford was the, the creator of the assembly line mm -hmm. and really like brought forth automobiles into the States. Hiroshi, which we've just learned, is the most successful captain of industry in Republic City. And when Asami offers to introduce the two, Mako happily accepts her offer. Hey, do you want to meet my dad? <laughs> he was a little too excited. for. I would be like, mm, I don't know. He, yeah, well, it's the first date. It's not so much meeting her dad. It's more like meeting, you know, what he said, like the, the business tycoon of Republic City. Yeah, but like, even so, like, Yes, but he's a teenager. What does he care about the business tycoon of Republic City other than the fact that it's a, the ability to introduce a new character and it, it's a ability to introduce new lore into the world for us viewers? Yeah, actually. So because you said that, I will say they could have included more of a clue or more of a, a nod to the fact that he's interested in that. I mean, aside from him like bending at the power plant and doing like pro bending practice and pro bending games and tournaments, we don't really like know what his other interests are. So if we had seen him like with some um, Sodomobile posters on his mm. wall or, you know, a comment here or there about the, how nice that car is, like I would have been more on board with the fact that he was so excited to meet yeah. her dad. But you're right. The, the, it's a very little critique. It's kind of strange for a teenager to be like, yeah, I'll meet your dad, the creator of the Sodomobile. Yeah, like like you said, we've never seen him care about it before. He's not like admired mm -hmm. any Sodomobiles before. He's never even expressed any interest in Sodomobiles. Uh, actually, I just looked it up too while you were talking. Hiroshi is to be compared to Henry Ford. So, nice. Yeah, you were right. This, this is this is why this is why you make the big bucks here. This those <laughs> little tidbits. The following morning on Air Temple Island, Bolin stops by to give Cora a single flower and a cupcake as thanks for saving him from Amon and his bending stealing abilities the night before. Bolin's rant about how scared he was that night is interrupted by a giant gift basket sent from Tarlock via a valet. A uh, typical politician. Yes, yes. Uh, the gift basket is in hopes that Cora will reconsider joining his task force. And the valet leaves when Cora tells them that she's still not joining. Bolin gets a little jealous of another man trying to win over Cora. But Cora tells Bolin that this is just Tarlock and he's just some like guy that works with Tenzin. And Bolin feels a lot better about that. 
So I understand you're dirt poor, Hiroshi tells Mako as the scene shifts back to the pro-bending star and his encounter with his, I was going to say father-in-law, but that's not accurate. Mako is still a bit embarrassed, but Hiroshi tells him of his own backstory and how he too came from nothing. Then one day he had an idea and that idea became the Satomobile. If it wasn't for the help of an investor, then he wouldn't be where he is today. Hiroshi is happy to sponsor the Fire Ferrets in the tournament. The only catch is that they have to wear the Future Industries logo on their uniform. Mako tells Hiroshi that he'll get it tattooed on his chest if that's what he wants, and everyone shares a laugh. I thought that was a kind of a weird comment, too. Again, because like, yeah. yeah, you're getting money to be able to go into a tournament, but it would have been more believable if we knew that he was like a big fan of Hiroshi Sato. I don't have that kind of hang up with it personally. Um, yeah. Because really two reasons. One, his daughter wants to give the firefighters the money and his daughter is a big fan. Uh, so I think this is just a gift for his daughter. And two, mm -hmm. he's stupid rich. That's true. This is not probably to pennies him. for him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Pennies. Um, it's yeah. also good marketing. Yeah. So it, it kind of works that way. And Hiroshi does kind of, for me, read as a savvy businessman. Uh -huh. So he's kind of seeing... Uh, not only it's like a, it's like a triple win, right? He's getting the free advertising or not free, but like, I mean, might as well be free for him. Like the cheapest advertising he'll get his company name on a professional bending team and one that's True. in the limelight at the moment. True. Going into the big, big tournament, mm -hmm. making yep. his daughter happy. Mm -hmm. And also now her, uh, Mako is going to just say how good Hiroshi is, how good of a guy he is. And that's just going to help word of mouth. Yeah. And especially Bolin. Bolin can't keep his mouth shut at any point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so he, Bolin's really going to take that advertising further and it's, for him. It's the team that the Avatar is on. Like, true. come true. on now. I was surprised they didn't mention that the whole time. Like, even even the, in the next scene when they go to the gala, yeah. I was expecting to, them to be like, oh, the Avatar, the last you know, member of the fire ferrets, mm -hmm. but they, they never really mentioned it, which I thought was interesting. I, I like that the fire ferrets, I mean, they, it's just the three of them. So they don't have like a marketing team, but they don't yeah. think to market that aspect of their team. They're yeah. not leaning into it. It's just a fact. It's just a detail. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I do have a fun little note about uh, Asami's boots. Oh, okay. <laughs> and really just boots in general. In the show. Um, so in the commentary, they were talking about the outfits and Janet's like, you know, please, let's start making these clothes. I would buy them in a second. All the designs are so cool and this and that. And Brian was talking about Joaquim saying that, you know, Joaquim's a dude's dude. He wears flip-flops and a Star Wars baseball cap every day. But he also loves designing women's shoes, women's footwear. And he's really good at it. And so uh, they were saying like, he just comes in and he's like, hey, man, I saw some boots the other day. And like wants to turn it into a design. And he uh, had this this uh, habit of saying, of tacking on the word theory mm -hmm. to everything. So he'll come into the into the office one day and be like, I got this boot theory I'm working out. <laughs> 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 so apparently we can um, tribute and thank Joaquim for some of the really great character designs. Oh, thank you. The shoes. Thank you, Joaquim. Mm -hmm. Voice acting note here. Yeah. Hiroshi Sato is voiced by Daniel Day Kim. Now, if that name sounds... I know that name. You do, yes. He's on Hawaii Five O, like the rebooted, more recent one, as mm -hmm. Chin Ho Kelly. He is in the Saints Row series as Johnny Gat. He played General Fong in Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh. Played Gavin Park in Angel. He's one of the evil lawyers. You saw okay. Rhea, The Last Dragon. 
He played oh, ben- yeah. Benja or Benya. And I left the one that you will know for last. He was in Lost as Jin. That's why. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's why. Yeah. Daniel Day Kim. I love Daniel Day Kim. I've enjoyed everything that I've seen him in. I've really enjoyed. He's a very uh, diverse actor. He's able, like, yeah. Johnny Gat is a very, like, hoodlum-esque, tough guy kind of character. But then you also have Jin, who seems to be very traditional, but very loving. And, but he's very cold in the beginning. And then Fong was just kind of a jerk. Yes. So, <laughs> back on Air Temple Island, Iki and Milo pretend to drive a Sato mobile, which is a very good reinforcement of how luxury this brand is because yes. it's a gift from Tarlock to kind of like entice her more to join the task force. Yep. Tenzin shakes his head and finds Korra in the training yard practicing her circle walking. Tenzin asks Korra to sit down with him and he tells her that it's okay to be scared. And while he's happy she turned down Tarlock, he wants to make sure that she's doing it for the right reasons. The important thing is to talk about your fears because if we don't, they can throw us out of balance. I'm always here for you if you want to talk, he tells Cora as he gets up and leaves. It's nice that he picked that up. Yeah. It's nice that he he notices there's something going on, but he also is trying to be gentle about it. And he's able to be gentle about it, unlike his mm-hmm. father, I'm sure, who would just <laughs> charge into it at full blast. Probably, yeah. yeah. He, I very much appreciate the emotional maturity that Tenzin brings to any yeah. situation. Me too. And I love that they drop it every once in a while, too, because it just yeah. really balances him out. Like, he's very mature, very wise, very in control, and then he loses control. And it just uh-huh. makes those moments so much sweeter for me. I know. And he gets all red and you hear the sax yep. horns in the background <laughs> as he's getting mad. It's such a good character detail. I love it. Later that night, Tarlock's valet drops off an invitation for a gala in Cora's honor. Cora isn't sure if she's going to accept it, but we're going to learn that she eventually does because the very next scene is Cora, Tenzin, and the kids who are attending the gala as everyone claps upon their arrival. And everyone looks so good. Yeah. I love their costumes so much. Cora is a bit awestruck at the reception, but Tenzin tells the young avatar to keep her guard up as he's unsure what Tarlock is planning. After all, Tarlock does not throw a party for the fun of it. As soon as he utters the words, the councilman introduces Korra to Hiroshi Sato, while Milo doesn't explicitly say what Milo does. I'm assuming he poops in a vase of some kind. Yeah, I I was picturing some sort of container on the banquet table, looking like a toilet and him just going (laughs) for it. And his father yells, Milo, no, that's not a toilet. (laughs) Uh, Hiroshi introduces Asami to Korra, who has Mako on her arm. Mako and Bolin tell Korra how Asami and Mako first met and that Hiroshi has agreed to sponsor their team so they can compete in the tournament. Korra appears to be jealous of the couple as Tarlock continues to introduce Korra around before calling a secret press conference at the gala. I very much like that Tarlock kind of like brings over uh, Toph's daughter again. Lynn. Lynn, thank you. Yeah, I can remember yeah. her name for the life of me. Lynn. And Lynn is the spitting image of her mother in that kind of scenario. <laughs> yes. She's like, don't think all of this like fancy dancy stuff gets you off the hook here, Avatar. You didn't earn uh-huh. any of this and just leaves. They talk about her in the commentary and there was 
talking about how it had been a couple episodes since we'd seen her. So they had to put her back in somehow. They were like, also, we just love the fact that she shows up to this fancy gala mm-hmm. in her uniform, yes. in her armor. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't even try changing into something fancy she's like no this is my this is my outfit i love that lynn is like it doesn't even matter who lynn's father is yes she's just her mother i love it so much after some questions and badgering from the press cora declares that she will join tarlock's task force i feel like tarlock paid off a couple press members there because they knew exactly which buttons to press Absolutely. Cora to like get agitated enough to just disregard her fear and say, fine, I'll join it. And they note that in the commentary too, Brian points out specifically, um, there's a lot of big differences between Aang and Cora, but one of Cora's weaknesses is that she's so gung ho and so aggressive and so like wanting to do the job and get it done. And so Tarlock absolutely manipulates that in this situation. Tarlock has those classic Wang Fang vibes right now. He's yes. not. He's not as like creepy. Great comparison. There's. Uh-huh. The, the, he's going about it slightly different, but like that sleazy politician. You know, you can't trust him. They're really building off what they kind of established in Avatar: The Last Airbender on that one. They're like trying to fake us out a little bit. It's just. It's masterfully done. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Later on, Tarlock briefs the task force on a secret chi blocking training facility located somewhere in the city. Quora and the rest of the task force raid the facility late at night, but she is unable to recognize any of the members being trained as they are all masked. Quora is startled when she sees a tapestry bearing Amon's mask hanging from the training room, but shakes it off to the best of her ability. The raid is successful as nobody escapes. Unfortunately, Quora has missed bending practice and her teammates are not exactly thrilled with this trade-off. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not exactly thrilled. They did something very purposefully. I don't know if they talked about this on the the commentary or not. There's no music in the beginning. It's serious. Yeah. The The sound design is really well done. Um, yeah. And then like once the chase is on towards the end, because like the initial raid and initially getting everyone silent, just sound effects. And it really kind of added to the intensity, the importance, and you concentrate more on Cora's fear here and her, her yeah. PTSD, let's face it, without any distractions from music. Yeah. It was a really dynamic sequence too. Yeah. And just oh, yeah. as a reminder, Mike and Brian are, are storyboard artists. So they storyboarded that scene and basically wrote the visuals into the script, which is why it came, came out so good. And like the more that they reveal about Aman and his practices and mm-hmm. his followers, the creepier it just gets. Yeah. During yet another press conference, Cora publicly challenges Amon to a one-on-one duel at midnight on Ang Memorial Island. Cora's words cause an uproar from the press as everyone has follow-up questions, but the Avatar ignores them and walks off stage. That night, Mako and Asami ride in a carriage. After she asks him why he's not wearing the new scarf she bought him, Mako explains to Asami that his scarf used to belong to his father and is the only remaining part of him that Mako has. Asami tells him that she lost her mother when she was very young. Mako takes her hand and looks deeply into her eyes. Asami rests her head on Mako's chest and admits that she feels so safe with him. I have to note the fact that we meet Asami and get to the scene where they're going out on dates and like they've emotionally bonded in one episode in like a matter of 10 minutes. 
And I really like the way that they did that because they showed the collision, showed them going out to dinner. And then after that, they just kind of implied the fact that they've been spending some time together. Yeah. At the gala, they show up together. In the carriage, she references a gift she tried to give him. Like it implies that they've been spending time together. And it's such a little nuancey thing to do when you're not going to see the development firsthand to do these little cookie crumb type of hints as stuff's been going on off stage. I also like that this is happening very quickly. It's teen love. It's a teen relationship. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that would also felt really nice. It lacks an emotional maturity. That's my term of the day, apparently. Emotional maturity that like <laughs> Zuko had unexpectedly. Like if you kind of think mm-hmm. about it, oh, what was her name from um, her, his date? Oh, yes. I can't remember um, her name right now. Everyone's yelling at me right now. I, I want to say it's Lynn. What? Well, let's just say it's Lynn. But like everyone remembers the 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 fire fountain. Yes, date. the fire fountain date. Yeah, and they were both really mature on that date. I felt like they. I think they both kind of knew it wasn't really going to work out, but they were just having a good time and they were kind of like yeah. around. And the, it was a little romantic, but like there was just something there. Versus mm-hmm. this one where they're just like, "Oh, you're pretty. I'm handsome. We're in love," and that's kind of <laughs> what happened. Yeah. Also, I'm from the wrong side of the tracks, maybe in your father's eyes, and you're rich. All right, let's be in love for... Lady in, Lady in the Tramp. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, anyways, we, we're going to shift focus over to Cora, who is about to leave for a showdown, and Tenzin attempts to persuade her not to go through with this rash decision. Tarlock admits that he tried to talk her out of it, but was unable to. Cora ignores both of their pleas and leaves for her confrontation. You know what energy that has? What's that? Cora challenging Amon to a duel. Uh-huh. Really has the same vibe as Katara challenging Master Paku. I mean, maybe 85% more dangerous? Oh, absolutely. But it's just more like, okay, listen. Come and fight me. Let's 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 end this. Let's settle this. I can see that. Yeah. 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 I feel like we're learning a lot more about the um, Southern Water Tribe's culture mm-hmm. in Korra than we ever did in Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah. Because we noted back when we were covering um, the first series that the Northern Water Tribe is very proper and they're about their ways and their customs and that the Southern Water Tribe didn't really have much of a culture left because they were so ravaged by the war. But I think that culture that was there was exhibited by Sokka. And I'm not just saying that because Sokka is my favorite character, but like he was very rash and he's very headstrong. And he, while he had a plan, he did kind of have this pride to him. And it's mm-hmm. not like it's not the same thing as Zuko pride. It's like a kind of a different kind of pride. And Korra exhibits that almost to a T. And we see that a bit with with Katara as well, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. So, so I think that was just a little bit of what was the remnants of the Southern Water Tribes culture. And now that they're kind of rebuilding and expanding, they're regaining that culture and it's becoming mm-hmm. more prominent. Yeah. And it's been, you know, dozens of years. So I know that I'm pretty sure we're going to see the Southern Water Tribe in Korra. I can't remember, um, but I'm excited for that because, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Things have been building up and, and they have that distinct culture from the Northern Water Tribe. So Korra heads off for the confrontation and she just waits and waits 
and waits. And it hits midnight. The clock tower goes off, gives her a heart attack. She kind mm-hmm. of shakes it off. And she's just kind of like, well, who's afraid now? I'm on your no-show. And as she lets her guard down and she walks past an open archway, she gets ambushed. Yeah. And knocked out by chi blockers. Um, fun fact about that. Uh-huh. Because when she's the uh, I forget what it's called, the bolo was used to wrap around her legs yes. and they dragged her into the darkness. And then she's surrounded by all these chi blockers. Um, apparently that sequence where she uses her firebending in the dark was actually an unused concept from Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh. They initially thought that Aang would have fought Zuko in complete darkness. Oh, and so, that would have been so cool. Yeah. And so the scene would have been lit only by fire. So that was a concept that they turned into the sequence with yeah. Korra. Ah, I like that they reused it. I like it. Yeah. 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 Oh, also the fact that this is air, uh, not Air Temple Island, but this is the Memorial Island. It's implied, even though we don't see the collection inside the museum, that um, the island is basically dedicated to the quest that Aang and his friends went on to That's save nice. the world. Yeah. So there would probably be like relics and um, uh, uh, artifacts and like things that would have been collected, pictures and whatever. Yeah. Um, which is such a cool, cool thought. I would have loved to see that. Yeah, me too. Well, Cora comes to... And is face to face with Amon. I received your invitation, young Avatar. And all of a sudden, her nightmares come to a realization. And I brought up earlier that kind of like usually nightmares are kind of like a more exaggerated, scarier of what you actually would yep. see. I think this is scarier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She didn't even get a chance to fight back. He he took her out, neutralized her within a moment's notice. But unlike her nightmare, Amon tells her that he's going to decide to not take her bending away, even though doing so would make his life a bit easier. He tells her that if he took her bending away, it would only turn her into a martyr and the world's benders would rally around her untimely demise. Amon tells Korra that he has a plan and that he is saving Korra for last. She is subsequently struck unconscious and sees visions of an adult Sokka, Toph, Yakon, and Aang. Korra wakes up to Tenzin running towards her. Korra mistakes her airbending teacher for his father, but eventually recognizes Tenzin. Korra is shaken to her core, or shaken to her Korra. I knew it. <laughs> ah! I knew it. I knew that was coming. <laughs> Couldn't help it. It's just right there. It's the lowest hanging. So she cries in Tenzin's arms. She has never felt so helpless and scared before. Admitting your fears is the first and most difficult step in overcoming them. Tenzin tells Cora as the scene fades to black. The end. Uh, mm-hmm. They also noted that that little scene in the commentary saying like, the episode didn't end on a victory. Like, yay, we won. Instead, it was like, you know, you faced your fear and it's such a real raw emotional moment because she starts bawling because it was just like that emotional release. They also teased Janet because she's really good at crying, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that's the episode. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I need to know what you think the moral of the episode is. You know, I think it's actually along the lines of um, facing your fears. Because if you face your fears, you're not held back by, by them. It pays off to face your fears in the end. Yeah. I, I can't think of a, a different moral that you can take out of this episode. Yeah. Um, I really think that they were leaning heavy on the facing your fears uh, theme in here. And mm -hmm. I like that they made Cora's fear not as scary as what could actually happen. So yeah. it, kind of in a roundabout way, it braced her a bit for what was about to happen. It didn't like it, it breaks her a bit, but it doesn't like, again, I were like, again, I already watched the next episode. She's able to be like herself again. Mm -hmm. She doesn't let this kind of like paralyze her. And I think because she was able to face her fear and she got a taste for what that would entail. Now she knows what to expect instead of yeah. just like thinking about it. So she has yeah. that closure, which is really cool. Yeah. Not dwelling on it because yeah. otherwise it's this big, um, you know, mental block. It's just taking up so much space. Who's your MVP? You know what? It has to be Cora. Yeah. Because she, this was a lot of emotional stuff for her to get through. And um, they do talk about that in the commentary about how uh, they really leaned into like, what is her utmost fear? What does it take for her to face this deepest, darkest fear? Um, so a lot of it was based on her emotions. And I think it was a, it was a big emotional journey for her yeah. that she got through. I would agree, but I have a backup. So I'm going to say my backup is the MVP okay. and, yeah. and that's Tenzin. Yeah, he's, he is definitely the runner up. MVP yeah, for, for sure. sure. He's able to recognize when something's wrong with Cora and he knows what to say. And he's just like, you, we already know he's a good dad. Yeah. And he's able to translate those skills into being a good mentor. Yeah. Because while they're similar, they're not exactly the same. Um, and I, I think he's also trying to figure out exactly that line between parent and, and mentor. And, you know, like, Again, I don't remember what happens too, too much later on. Maybe he doesn't need to know that difference. Maybe he finds that they're just the same role mm -hmm. and that like he considers Cora like a daughter. I would assume that's what's going to happen. I feel, I feel like Brike would be really mean if Tenzin never said you're like a daughter to me because like she kind of is. Yeah, she, she kind of is at this point. <laughs> she kind of is, but that's kind of just my vibe. So yeah, um, I think Tenzin for me. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, since everyone is clearly caught up on all of the past episodes and has clearly already left a five-star written review over on Apple Podcasts and has already answered the Q&A and the polls that we have established and is subscribed to Avatar the Podcast on YouTube, that just means they need to do more stuff. Clearly, right? Clearly. We're just that parent that's just like, more, more. What? you? It, no, we're not like that. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, there, the moral of what I'm trying to tell you, the point is that there's more content for you to watch if you want it. And that's over where, Acorn? On twitch.tv slash Booster Greg. Oh, well, I was going to say twitch.tv slash Acorn Bandit. Okay, I'll, just, I'll, I'll do your announcement. You do mine. Okay, great. Head over to twitch.tv slash Booster Greg on Mondays and Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern. Never Wednesdays. Never Wednesdays. Don't worry about Wednesdays. For a rare and good time. That's right. And you can also go to twitch.tv slash Acorn Bandit for all of your uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 role-playing needs. Currently, I'm addicted. I, I didn't say it. You did. <laughs> I'm addicted. <laughs> there's a lot. There's 
uh, several days of content, literal hours, like 70 plus hours. No, more than that. There's hundreds of hours. <laughs> Greg, I, I looked yesterday. I've streamed 101 hours in Ooh. like, in like Jeez. two to three weeks, yeah. I think. I think it's two weeks. So yeah. I believe yeah. it. But yeah. So there's plenty of Red Dead Redemption 2 roleplay in the form of Wild RP roleplay for you to watch there. Her character Aurelia is quite the island hopper. Just goes from one end of the world to the other. It's pretty, yep. it's really cool to watch. Very interesting. Uh, she's also playing Red Dead Redemption 2, the story mode, which she hasn't done yet at all. Uh, mm -hmm. And also she draws and illustrates yeah. and does a lot of really cool stuff there. So, so you should do it there. Uh, there is no schedule. Nope. You're just lucky to catch it if you do. So, you know, it, it's like one of those really cool secret shows. Uh -huh. from like your indie band that's that's acorn yeah. streams right there so yeah um you could also turn on notifications to get that I, that secret flyer i was just the directions on the back yeah you yeah. don't have to yeah. put four flyers together to like hold it up to a map <laughs> and see exactly what and where uh -huh. it is you just get it just shows up right on your phone so yep. convenient yep mm -hmm. uh, all right everyone thank you again so much for hanging out with us this episode uh remember subscribe to the youtube Follow the podcast on any of the podcast feeds that you currently go to. If you have a couple extra bucks in your pocket, you can go to patreon.com slash avatar the podcast and um, help to pay for editing and all additional yep. costs that we incur for the show. Um, but until then, we'll see you next time on Avatar, avatar the, the Podcast. podcast.